Hi, I'm Vashi Capellos, and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, January 21st. On the show this week, should Canadians have to be pro-choice for their organizations to receive federal money? We'll ask Employment Minister Patty Haidu about this change to the summer grants program. Then, a bad joke. That's what President Trump called the North American Free Trade Agreement late last week, just days ahead of round six of the trade negotiations. What's at stake as negotiators head to Montreal on Tuesday? Then we'll unpack the politics of those trade talks and the Prime Minister's upcoming trip to mingle with the rich and powerful in Davos. But first, the government recently announced controversial changes to the Canada Summer Jobs Program, which prompted backlash from religious leaders who call it a values test. The change calls for employers hiring students over the summer to attest that their organization's mandate respects human rights, the Charter, and specifically reproductive rights. So why the changes and where do they end? Joining me now from Thunder Bay, Ontario, is Employment Minister Patty Haidu. Thanks for being with us, Minister. I wanted to start off by asking, why does your government feel it was necessary to add that attestation box as a requirement before organizations can qualify to receive money to hire students for the summer? Well, the Canada Summer Jobs Program is really designed to address um, uh, the need for young Canadians to, first of all, earn a bit of money in between periods of study, but secondly, and maybe even more importantly, to gain that great job experience that will move them forward in their careers, whether it's uh, identifying a career path or gaining those soft skills that our employers are looking for. And we know that those quality job experiences should be with organizations that have a respect for the Charter of Rights and freedoms and other fundamental rights of Canadians. But religious groups see it as a threat to their freedom of religion and their ability to even hire summer students. What do you say to them? The way that the attestation is written is um, that the organization's core mandate and the job description have to respect the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and other fundamental rights. And so the majority of organizations in this country should have no problem attesting that their core mandate does in fact respect the Charter. And you know, we are uh, profoundly grateful and work very closely with faith-based groups across the country and know the great work that they do. And so uh, we know that uh, this, uh, this attestation will um, not invalidate most uh, most groups in the country. What about a camp, though, run by a Catholic church? The church is not pro-choice. Will they no longer qualify for any federal funding? Organizations um, have a variety of mandates, and faith-based groups also have a variety of mandates. And the mandates usually specify, uh, for example, for a faith-based organization like the Catholic Church, it may specify, you know, spreading the word of God or of Christ. Uh, other faith-based organizations have uh, mandates that are around alleviating suffering or addressing poverty. Um, and so, again, there are many beliefs and values that go into an organization, but the organization's mandate and the job description is what we're, we're most interested in. But some organizations say they won't be able to sign off on the attestation because it conflicts with their beliefs. Each organization is going to have to make a decision based on their own, um, their own comfort level. But what I can tell you is that this attestation is written in a way that specifically addresses the mandate of the organization and the job description. You know, mandates are generally uh, broad statements of, of purpose. And uh, obviously, many different beliefs and values go into an organization. And sometimes there's conflicting beliefs and values in an organization. And that's why it's specifically written to address an organization's mandate. I can tell you as a former not for-profit organization executive director, we had a mandate 
mandate that was about alleviating poverty and uh, providing shelter to those uh, to everyone. We believed that shelter was a fundamental right. That didn't mean that necessarily everyone that worked for the organization or even um, you know members of the board agreed about how to achieve that mandate. And there were often uh, you know heated arguments about uh, how we move forward with this mandate and how we deliver on our mandate. Those are normal conversations that happen within organizations. A mandate is a specific statement of purpose and a job description, of course, clearly specifies what the job would be. It seems conflicting to me. I don't think there's anything conflicting in the statement that an organization's primary mandate and that the job description respect the Charter of Rights and, uh, and other fundamental rights that Canadians have. What we're trying to make sure is that these jobs for young people uh, are in uh, experiences that are respectful of the rights uh, that Canadians have and that they gain the kinds of experiences in a non-discriminatory way. And so this is the kind of uh, attestation that we've designed to address that, to make sure that uh, organizations that are applying for this, this grant, um, which by the way, organizations have to apply for every year, uh, you know, that their organization's mandate and job description re uh, uh, respect the charter. Do you see extending these attestations to other areas in the future? At this point, my responsibility is for the Canada Summer Jobs Program, and so uh, we're focused right now on the unrolling of the Canada Summer Jobs Program. But I just want to be clear here. Are you ruling out adding the attestation box to other government employment programs? I would say that you know when we're uh, delivering um, funding for uh, programs through the Canadian government, we um, we need to be reflective of the rights that Canadians have and the right for Canadians to uh, you know to experience um, uh, you know whether it's employment experiences in a non-discriminatory way. But again, will you extend it to other programs? Right now, my focus is Canada Summer Jobs. What about adding other attestations? For example, will groups have to sign off on doctor-assisted death. You know, right now, uh, the attestation, we're very comfortable with where the attestation stands. As I said, this is about uh, ensuring that an organization's core mandate and the job description, um, you know, uh, complies with the charter and other fundamental rights. And what I can say is that, you know, employers, um, by and large, should have no problem with, with the attestation because, in fact, mandates of organizations generally do comply. And so we're really looking forward to the launch of Canada Summer Jobs. Uh, employers have till February 2nd to apply and we anticipate that we'll have a similar demand by employers and in fact students you know there were a number of employers that we couldn't grant requests to last year simply because of demand and that's that's good news for young Canadians okay we'll leave it there thanks very much minister you too take care thank you a bad joke no wall no deal those are just some of the comments President Donald Trump made late last week on NAFTA. Trade negotiators head to Montreal for round six on Tuesday with a ton of big issues still on the table. And U.S. officials are said to be angry with Canadian negotiators accusing them of dragging their heels. Joining me now from Washington to dissect it all is Ambassador Michael Froman, former trade representative under President Obama. Ambassador, it's great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. How critical, sir, do you see this round of NAFTA negotiations being? Well, I think uh, uh, all of these rounds are important. You've got the, the lead negotiators, you've got the ministers, you've got the technical experts getting together. They've got a pretty full agenda um, over, this, uh, over this period of time. And it's at a critical point where I think it'll be important to show whether progress can be made on some of the most difficult outstanding issues. 
I remember when we last spoke, it was sort of at the outset of these negotiations before we knew how they would unfold. Now, when we're looking back, do you think this has played out the way you thought it would? Um, more or less. I, I think it was always very ambitious to think that it was going to get completed by the end of last year or even by March of, of, of this year. I think you'll be getting to hear people, including uh, from the United States, talk about how this may need to move uh, uh, beyond March and maybe beyond the Mexican elections in order to get, in order to get done. Uh, so I think the people, as they come to the table, are realizing how complicated things are. On one hand, there are a lot of issues that should be relatively easy to resolve because they were resolved in the context of the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiation that both Canada and Mexico were party to as well. But there are new additional issues that the Trump administration has put on the table, as have the other parties, and those will take some time to work through as well. And I wanted to ask you about a couple of those issues. Given your perspective, uh, you know, being at the table, of course, and leading the negotiations with TPP, how big of a, a, a sort of a fighting point or, or red line do you think the A, dispute mechanism, uh, resolution mechanism will be, and B, rules of origin? Well, I think on the, uh, on the, the, the Chapter 19 issues that Canada feels very strongly about, uh, Mexico does as well. Uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see whether those do prove at the end of the day to be red lines. Clearly, the, the people in the Trump administration, many of whom come into government with a deep background in our trade remedy laws, our anti-dumping and our countervailing duty laws, and they're quite concerned about that dispute settlement process that was agreed to in NAFTA. Uh, obviously, our laws are still subject to both domestic challenge in our own courts and also at the World Trade Organization. And so I think their view is we don't need another layer of oversight uh, in the NAFTA context. Canada feels very strongly or has traditionally felt very strongly about that. It'll be interesting to see whether at the end of the day that becomes a red line that it can't cross. And speaking of the WTO, Canada recently uh, filed a, a, a grievance, basically, about anti-dumping and anti-subsidy duties. What do you make of, of the timing of that filing? Well, you know, this is an issue, uh, or a set of issues that we've had in our relationship for a very long time. We bring countervailing duty and, and anti-dumping cases against Canada. Canada brings them against us. We challenge each other's practices. Uh, uh, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. In a normal environment, that would be nothing, nothing special, and it would be part of the normal ways of dealing with trade frictions between very strong trading partners. Right now, I don't think it was particularly well timed because this administration, the Trump administration, um, is very critical of the WTO and the dispute settlement uh, body. And we'll be looking uh, very much at whether the dispute settlement body will be, will be constraining American sovereignty when it comes to the implementation of our trade remedy laws, which have a lot of support here. And so by Canada bringing that challenge to the WTO, it is almost picking a fight that the, that the administration would welcome. The administration would welcome an opportunity to say the WTO really shouldn't be in a position to judge these things and we're going to pull back from the dispute settlement procedure overall. That's not in anybody's interest, certainly not in Canada's interest. And, uh, and, I, and I hope that cooler heads will prevail as this, as this case moves forward. Would it have been your advice to the Canadian government to delay that process? You know, like, uh, there are a lot of factors that, that go into into every country's uh, decision to bring a, a WTO case. We brought some against Canada in the last administration. Canada brought some against us. 
you know, we, we, have a, we have a very good and deep trade and investment relationship, but we also have a lot of conflicts uh, between us. And they go back uh, uh, quite a few years on, on things like softwood lumber, uh, but also various subsidy programs or various market access issues or, or, uh, or, or dairy and poultry and the limitations there. So we have a lot of issues between us. Uh, I, I can understand why Canada moved forward, but I think in the context of this administration, really having fundamentally different views than previous administrations about the multilateral trading system, um, I hope it doesn't end up blowing up in their face. Before we go, since we, since, again, since we last spoke, uh, our government here in Canada has really begun progress, uh, pushing, I'm sorry, a progressive trade agenda. With all the, the uh, even the TPP in China, it's kind of backfired in those two cases on them. I'm wondering if you think, uh, you know, indigenous rights, gender rights should be a hill to die on for our government during NAFTA negotiations, or if you think it might get them into trouble. Well, I think the idea of using trade agreements to help strengthen a progressive agenda is a, is a good idea. Uh, certainly during the Obama administration, what we did on, on labor issues, environmental issues, uh, anti-corruption, governance, uh, regulatory transparency, those are all important progressive causes that I think make a lot of sense and have a nexus to trade that, uh, uh, that makes it very, very powerful to use trade agreements to help enforce, for example, multilateral environmental uh, agreements. You know, on the particular on the particular issues of indigenous uh, peoples and gender uh, equality issues, those are obviously of great concern uh, in Canada and and elsewhere uh, around the world. How they integrate into a trade agreement uh, remains uh, to be seen. But I think the fundamental issue of using trade tools to help pursue a progressive agenda is a very is a very good idea. Okay, thanks, Ambassador Froman, for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. As NAFTA negotiations resume on Tuesday, the Prime Minister will be in Davos, Switzerland, an international gathering of the world's rich and powerful. Joining me now to unpack the politics of the importance of both of these events this week are Bob Fife, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail, and our own Chief Political Correspondent, David Aiken. Thank you both, gentlemen, for being here. I appreciate Happy to be it. Here. Bob, I wanted to start with you. I thought one of the most interesting things I read this past week about NAFTA came out of Bloomberg saying that U.S. officials think Canada's kind of dragging its feet and not coming to the table with. Uh, concrete proposals and some of the hard stuff. Have you been hearing anything like that? Well, actually, that's not the case because Canada has put some um, proposals or will be putting in some proposals uh, in Montreal on on dealing with autos, trying to find a creative way to reach that 85 percent uh, content that the Americans have. And we, they're also apparently having some um, ideas in terms of how they can deal with dispute mechanisms. So I think that uh, Bloomberg was getting spun a bit from the uh, American side. Canada is definitely trying to play a constructive role in these talks, as is Mexico. It's the Americans that have been the obstructionists. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also fair to probably say that Canada is dragging its feet in the sense that they don't want uh, Trump to uh, abrogate this deal, and uh, they will—they are going to stay there for as long as they possibly can. But it's not fair to say that Canada isn't making constructive proposals. What do you think, David? Do you think that they are? How real do you think this concern is that that Trump will withdraw? Because we saw some reports last week, right. and then they were wrong. They were right. It, it, it's hard to make sense of. And, it. and this is the fascinating thing reporting on this story because we're going to be talking to the people we know most, which is the Canadian side. We're relying on our, our American reporter friends. They're talking to Americans and the Mexican press are getting spun by the Mexican side. And all three governments are very much, I think talking to the 
press to try and advance their position Except, or do you know, some you know strategy. What? Actually, to I'm hearing from the Americans that Lighthouser, mm -hmm. the U.S. Trade Representative, his people actually aren't very helpful. Not even with the American media and talking <laughs> right. to them. Well, someone's talking to them. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the whole point is, is there is a very much an element of. Uh, for the Canadian side, we think that the status quo would be fine. We would certainly like some improvements, and we've talked about some improvements, but status quo is, is, is also fine. And so there is an element of saying for the Canadians, uh, if it takes time, that's fine. We will spend the time, and we've got time to spend on this. The idea that maybe we can wait Trump out, that something will change, that it might get down to four years. Although there's a lot of people thinking that in the United States, that even if there's a new Republican president, they're going to continue to want to negotiate NAFTA. That the Republicans see this as a good thing for them. What do you think about the timing? This is round six. How critical? You mentioned some of the more contentious issues that Canada will be specific about this week. How critical is this point in time of the negotiations? Well, you know, this is a. They're going to more spend more days in Montreal than they have previously, and I do think that this is could be a really important meeting, where they can make. Uh, I think. There is an effort, will be an effort, at least on the Canadian and Mexican side, to see if they can move the Americans uh, closer to a deal. That may not happen, um, but Lighthouser is going to be with the uh, prime, with President uh, Trump in Davos, and then he's coming on, mon on the following Monday for the, the ministerial talks. It'll be really interesting to see if they've moved the ball at all. Uh, one hopes that they can, and if they don't, the next round is in Mexico, I mm -hmm. believe. And, you know, look, the clock is ticking because the Mexican elections are coming up. There are congressional elections. They want to get something done. And if they don't get anything done, maybe they, they, they delay it until after these elections. And the big problem, too, as the American, Wilbur Ross himself has said, they're coming to the table with no concessions and are asking for everybody else for concessions. It's kind of tough to strike a deal when you're not ready to do something for your negotiating partners. But you know, the interesting thing is Bush, or sorry, Trump is going to be in Davos. The prime minister is going to be in mm -hmm. Davos. Mr. Trump is coming there to preach his America First uh, agenda. The prime minister is going to be there. He's going to be meeting with North American business executives. His officials are saying he's going to downplay any threat that Trump's going to abrogate the, the NAFTA deal, and he's going to talk up, you know, look, we're going to reform this. Uh, we don't think even if he gives six months' notice, the U.S. Congress will prove this. And by the way, invest in, in Canada because it's a great place to invest. But the problem they have is if you're a, a major cor multinational corporation and you're not sure whether the president's going to abrogate NAFTA, are you really going to put any money in Canada? This well, is we exactly saw that from the Bank of Canada this week, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Stephen Paul that's the number one risk, and they, they're seeing that already. Investment decisions by major corporate players already in Canada are being put off, postponed until there's some clarity on NAFTA. I want to ask you a bit more about Davos in a second, but one last thing on NAFTA. We saw this uh, week Andrew Scheer headed to Washington to present a united front. Do you think it made a difference, David? I don't think it's making a difference. I think it's important politically for Andrew Scheer to have yeah. done that. It's really more for a domestic audience. Uh, Ronna Ambrose did the same thing when she was yeah. uh, the interim leader. So I, I think that's really aimed at a domestic audience. But Every little bit helps, I suppose. But, you know, Scheer, when he became leader, the Conservatives had begun to criticize the way mm -hmm. the Trudeau government was handling the NAFTA negotiations. And they must have gotten some backlash because he's done a turnaround on this and now supporting uh, the, uh, the Liberals' approach to this. So there is uh, clearly they've had a rethink in the Mr. Scheer's office. So, Davos, you are both heading there to cover the trip. Uh, we'll look forward to your coverage for sure. But 
Uh, Bob, why don't I ask you, it's, it's a gathering of the rich and powerful. There's a lot of mingling, a lot of talking. Does it serve a purpose for Canada? Well, um, the prime minister thinks it does because he's going to be meeting with corporate executives. He's going to meet with some world leaders, not Mr. Trump, I don't think, but he'll meet with Angela Merkel, for example, the German ch chancellor. Um, but he's probably going to be also, he seems to like hobnobbing with Hollywood uh, movie stars because you and I did it in 2016, remember? He was with Kevin Spacey and yeah. Leonard, maybe not this, Leonard Maybe not this time. Yeah. No, yeah. not this time. <laughs> Kate Blanchett is the yeah. star I'm looking yeah. for. Different, She's different crowd, different lineup, yeah. yeah. You know, and the, the uh, conservatives are saying, you know, why is he really going there? Is there any purpose to going to Davos now other than get your picture taken with all these celebrities. So he's going to have to be careful, and David and I will watch, oh, to yes. make sure that he's actually meet, doing something constructive and not just partying or skiing on the slopes with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And, and to be fair, he did he did take a lot of meetings last time, too, and there is yeah. a pretty prestigious lineup. Right. This so, time so Davos has been around for a number of years, and it is sort of the high church of global capitalism. This year, there are more heads of state and heads of government than any other Davos. Trudeau is one of the headliners. When they're advertising this event. It's Trump, Emmanuel Macron from France, Modi from India, and Trudeau. Trudeau is a celebrity right now in his own right. So a lot of heads of government here. But what's Davos all about? Davos is all about the post-war liberal international order that America was quite a big part of forming. It's the order that defeated communism, etc., etc., etc. And Trump is showing up here. Trump is absolutely going to be a challenge to these global elites. He's going to give them challenges. I'm going to be fascinated to see what kind of buzz he gets there. But Klaus Schwab, who's the guy who founded this thing, said as much earlier this week that the, the Davos is all about getting together to solve the world's problems, and Trump is saying, you solve your problems, I'll solve my problems, and that's the way we should all get along. But, you know, it's a uh, uh, critics uh, critics, have all, critics also said, look, this is the billionaires club. The 1% are getting richer and richer. Mm -hmm. They never Trudeau ever talk about how you're going to help the poorest of the poor. Maybe Mr. Trudeau will do some of that. We'll see. He kind of has to. puts his money where his mouth is this time. Thanks, both of you. I appreciate it. Safe travels. All right. Thank <laughs> you. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thanks for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, you can head to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block Podcast.